right, friends, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. On the podcast, we help you navigate faith in the modern world, and today we've got a great guide for you. It is Father Greg Boyle. He is the founder of Homeboy Industries, which is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and re-entry program in the world. He's a New York Times best-selling author, and um, funny enough, the... Um, uh, the book that we're talking about, uh, he actually forgot that he was part of it. Uh, the Pope had put together, like the Pope put together this book, um, and uh, Greg Boyle wrote like a chapter on it. And uh, so when uh, I, I got an email from the publicist for the book, and I was like, yeah, I'll, t- I'll talk to the Pope. And like, yeah, you can't get the Pope. And I said, well, who else do you got? And they said, Father Greg Boyle. I said, yeah, I would love to talk to this guy because for years I have regretted missing an opportunity to talk to him years ago when he was at today's sponsor, which is Harbor the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Years ago, he was one of the guest speakers there and uh, just like didn't make it happen. And uh, so on the podcast today, we get to fix that. Um, but uh, before we get to the podcast, let me tell you about Harbor this year. Now, it is May 3rd through 6th in Malibu, California, and it is one of my favorite weeks of the year. And this year, they've got a lot of great stuff scheduled. Uh, for those of you who are looking for people you know from the podcast, they are many. There's a lot. Uh, obviously, I got Richard Beck's there, um, a new face. Uh, Kristen Kobez Dumay, Jesus and John Wayne, you know her. Uh, she is actually going to be doing two sessions with yours truly. We had such a great time doing the podcast together a couple months ago when she was on. Um, we, we made it happen. We're going to run it back and do two hour-long sessions in Malibu together, so come out for that. Also, Rick Ashley, Chris Seidman, Sean Palmer, Christine Kane, friend of the show, she's going to be back on, and, uh, and, and many others. So I'd encourage you, do me a favor, come spend a week in Malibu. Uh, they've got some great housing opportunities for you on campus, which can save you some money. Uh, a lot of great speakers, and we're going to be back together in person. It's been a couple years, so you need to be there. So uh, join me for that, and uh, without further ado, join me for this fun, fun conversation with Father Greg Boyle. All right, friends, welcome back to the show today. I am absolutely honored to be joined by Father Greg Boyle. How are you, Father? I'm real good. Thank you. Yes, sir. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with us. Um, Years ago, you and I were at the same conference in Malibu, California at Pepperdine University a few years ago. And I, uh, someone said, Hey, you should try to interview father Boyle then. And I didn't make it happen. Didn't reach out. And for years since then, I've seen your name pop up over and over again. And I've had this massive amount of regret that I thought I had my one chance, my one opportunity to talk to you. And lo and behold, the universe brings me a second opportunity. So I am very excited to talk to you today. That's great. Likewise. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, now I'm a Protestant in Texas. And so sometimes there's a little disconnect. There's a difference between the Protestant world and the Catholic world. And so I've tried to talk to probably some of our mutual friends who are over on your side of the aisle. Uh, Richard Rohr has been on half a dozen times. Father James Martin has been on. He's a Jesuit like you, correct? That's right. Rohr is a Franciscan. So do you guys have like a rivalry? Like, are you guys like enemies? Like, is he like the bad guy and you're the good guy? Like, how does this work? Do you guys get along? We get along. Richard's a friend and... But they're just different charisms, you know, St. Francis of Assisi and St. Ignatius of Loyola. So they, they have different kind of gifts, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, I talked with um, 
Father James Martin a couple of years ago in New York when he had just gotten, uh, he had just received like some invitation from the Pope to work for him or have like some special designation. I'm, I'm a Protestant, like I don't understand all these things. But uh, this book, you've been now invited to be participating in a project from the Pope. Like that's that's got to feel pretty exciting to get an invitation from the Pope to do anything, right? I have. Uh-oh. I'm, maybe I'm breaking the news for you. Did you not know that? <laughs> I don't know anything about this. Well, the book is like a book is from the Pope. Like the, the Pope has this prayer session, has an inspiration to like shine a light on the role of grandparents and other elders. And then you got- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that. Was the book, that was a book that came out um, some time ago. Yeah. And then I, uh, I was surprised to see that I was in it. <laughs> you were surprised to see that? Well, kind of. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, I, you know, I was interviewed for something. And next thing I know, I'm in a book on geezers. <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute. I don't resemble that remark, but apparently I'm a geezer. Well, they were promoting but, you. Like when the publicist was talking about that book, they sent your name like front and center on it like that. You were. Yeah. Well, then, then I think there's a Netflix special. I think I saw mm -hmm. connected to the book or something. But anyway, so I read the book, and, and apparently he comments on some of the reflections. Yeah. Or it, it's a Q&A. And then he has this thing where he says, you know, hey, I agree with Father Boyle. I said, oh, my God, it's not every day that the Pope agrees with you. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I feel like that's kind of a good thing when the Pope says something good about what you wrote. I mean, I've never had that happen to me, but I can only imagine that it makes you feel like you're on the right path. Yeah, no, it's good. I, I uh, so yeah, but it's many kind of several years ago that that kind of happened. So, but anyway, and, and you didn't know what the Pope was going to say about your piece in the book until you actually read it. Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't even know I was in the book, and then all of a sudden somebody says, "Hey, there's a book on geezers." You know, listen to old people, and I go, "Listen to old people." I'm 67 years old. And so anyway, I don't know. So they, um, so that's when I saw it and I went, oh my God, the Pope actually commented on my interview. He doesn't on all of them. Yeah, no. And there's a woman here named Connie who was a, um, uh, a volunteer. And that's how I knew about the, the book because she was in it. Mm -hmm. And I think she may have said to the people, hey, talk to this geezer priest. And so they did. And next thing I know, I'm in a book with, you know, about by the Pope and his friends, mm -hmm. which is pretty nice. So officially, so, you could put that on your CV like you are a friend of the Pope. That's right. There you go. <laughs> now, you've referred to this as a book about geezers. I will not uh, use that word, but I will let you use whatever <laughs> word you want. Um, the, the book that I'm looking at, uh, talks about elders and grandparents. So I will, um, let you describe it in whatever way you want. Well, I'm not a grandparent, but go ahead and <laughs> I'm, reading geezer. I'm reading geezer into it, but that's okay. I don't care. I don't, those things don't bother me. They don't. Oh, no, no, no. Did I, don't, you I could give two toots. <laughs> did you like, did you ever have fear of like, Turning 60 or 50 or 40? Was there like a big oh, birthday never, in Boston? Never. never? Uh-uh. I just, I, I, I just heard. I thought, we thought that was weird, you know, when people, um, I don't know, they, oh my God, I'm turning 40. I go, really? 
Oh, come on. Never. Okay. Cause I was like that. What was, what was coaching me up? Like I, I turned 40 and I was like, okay, that was kind of a big deal for me. It was a couple of weeks ago. And like, it, it did something to me. What? First, of all, first of all, happy birthday. Second Thank of you. all, who, who, you know, it's, it's only about now, you know, it's the eternal now. Mm-hmm. It's not about those kinds of things. I don't know. But it seems like you have less now, now to go. If, if like, you know, you turn 40, like theoretically, that's like halfway, half of the nows are already gone. I know we always talk about, you know, I'm middle aged and you go, look, people don't live to be 120. So what are you talking about? Middle. Mm-hmm. Okay. But so you tell me. That's what yeah, I think I am. Middle. I, I like that. I'll take that. Uh, okay. So since you're an expert on geezers, according to your own words, <laughs> what? You know, I've been around a church for years, and there are people of all ages and all generations of the churches that I've served. And one of the things that I've seen is that there's some people who, as they get older, they become sages. They become kinder, they become more gentle, and they have more wisdom. Other people seem like they just become bitter and cantankerous. Have you noticed that? And and if so, why do you think certain people take different paths? How come as people get older, some become sages and some become like bitter? I have no idea. I mean, I just think you're always trying to figure it out, you know, you know, kind of what, who, what is your true self? Um, What's the point? What is the purpose of all this? What are the things that matter? You know, so, I mean, that's the task of human beings. And so you want to be able to be faithful to that and to somehow put first things recognizably first and to live as though the truth were true. And sometimes people get stuck. And, and so in the end, it, you know, the dichotomy is never about good or bad, but it's always about sad or joy. And so the cantankerous part, I guess, is people who've gotten stuck in a sadness that they don't know how to shake. And, uh, and so, you know, Maybe that does happen as you get older, where you're you have less patience with the world, mm-hmm. and and you don't tolerate things very well. That's yeah. probably true. I think that I probably have a dose of that myself. But you know, um, I was thinking the other day. You know, you can't te- teach an old dog new tricks. Yes, but you have to teach an old dog. You have to remind an old dog about their old tricks. So mm-hmm. there are things that you know, but because you, you're, you're, there's a certain, all these muscles atrophy a little bit, and you have to remind yourself to cherish people with every breath you take, for example. That has to be part of your practice. You have to yeah. work with that. So, um, you know, that happens around here because I've been working with gang members for almost 40 years. And there was a, you know, a young woman, a homegirl who was just, you know, belligerent, nobody wanted to work with her. She was hard to, you know, a lot of trauma and stuff, but also some mental health issues, probably just really difficult. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so we were going back and forth and, and she was crying in my office and, you know, and it was, it ended fine. But later on in, before I went to bed, I, I just texted her. I said, you are my most courageous daughter. And 
I knew it was the right thing to say, and I felt it with all my heart, and I'm glad I remembered to, to remind myself to remember. And it was, I, I don't want to call it a trick as if it's sort of not real, but it was an old, you know, it was an old thing. I, I, I knew to do it, but you have to remind yourself. So anyone who thinks life is once and for all is, is a mistaken, mm-hmm. because it's every single day, it's what you have to work at. It's how you have to practice. So I was reading a book the other day, Rumi, a book on Rumi, and, and he says, love is God's religion, which mm-hmm. I think is, of course, true. And so, so I think, well, then loving is how you practice that religion. Hmm. And, but that's an every day, every moment, every breath decision. And yeah. so I kind of learned that the other night. I kind of went, you know, you, you want to throttle people sometimes, but people are in pain and, and, and you can always remind yourself to remember, yeah. you know, an old trick kind of. Yeah. And so you said it was an old trick to say, you're my most courageous daughter. What do you mean well, by that? I, no, I mean, just to be kind of attentive and to remember to, you know, to reach out and be extensive to her, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, but it's not a trick. I, I don't mean to, you know, to say that. I, I mean to say it's, there's nothing once and for all. You really have to remind yourself every second of your life. Yeah. I mean, would that things could be um, one and done? you know, and uh, once and for all, I've decided to be loving. Well, I'm glad I decided that 43 years ago. No, it's every breath, every breath. Mm-hmm. And and that's a kind of a consciousness, a, a sense of a, a attention and awareness. Um, that's why the Zen masters always say that there's no such thing as an enlightened person, only enlightened action. So I knew in that moment that was kind of an enlightened action. It was, uh, I remembered to kind of check in with her after we had had a hard conversation. And, and it was the right thing to do. But, I, it, you know, it's not a given that I would have remembered to, to just. And that's where the joy is. The joy is not being other-centered. That's the first step. Mm-hmm. The joy is is being loving centered, which is, you know, finding your true self and loving. So. Yeah. The, there's no such thing as enlightened people, but they're enlightened actions. And so that action, that trick or technique or that, 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 that move of speaking life into this woman's life, like that is an enlightened action because it speaks love into action, speaks love into who she is. I heard I think it's Rollheiser. A lot of people know uh, Richard Rohr talks about like the two halves of life. And I think a lot of people are familiar with that. I think Rollheiser, Ronald Rollheiser, you know, that is priest. Yeah, sure. He's a friend. Yeah. Okay. Figured. I wasn't going to say like all you guys know each other, but okay. Kind of eventually. Yeah. I mean, fair enough. I mean, you've been doing it for a while, but um, he's, he doesn't have two halves of life. He is, I think it's the three, the three thirds of life, I guess. But he talks about like in the last stage of, life, you have to forgive yourself for what you've done before. And part of like, as I understood it, and this is a year, couple of years ago when, when we talked to him last, but was the idea like part of what you have to do as you age is you have to learn how to love yourself, which includes 
the enlightened action of forgiving yourself for what you've done before. And I think that's, I can imagine that would be a way that bitterness holds on to us is that we can't do the enlightened action of being able to forgive ourselves. Does it make any sense to you? It does, except that, you know, um, I, I remember I was um, in Florida or something and uh, I was, I gave a talk and I was signing books and, uh, and my third book hadn't come out yet, but, uh, but this guy says, Hey, you know, I, I noticed that you never mentioned forgiveness hmm. and in any, either of my books at that point, there were only two. And I, I kind of thought about it and I said, you know, you're right. I don't think I ever talk about forgiveness. And then not to justify the fact that I never wrote about it. I said, well, it's because I think we settle for forgiveness and we need to hold out for mercy and mercy is larger. You know, it's more spacious. It's um, God doesn't forgive anything. That's not even in God's vocabulary, but God is infinitely merciful. Oh, that's way better. So I kind of, it, it feels like uh, forgiveness always awaits something. You know, it's always awaiting an apology, for example. Mm-hmm. And so I always feel like it's a partial thing. And we've settled for it, you know. And, and I think mercy is kind of the next level. So out of the character of God being merciful there is forgiveness. We have forgiveness because God is like a God of mercy. So the idea is like mercy is what's like behind forgiveness. So we should keep going up to pass forgiveness to mercy. Am I understanding you correctly? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, mercy is the prodigal son story. You know, it's the father running to the kid. Yeah. And, and he hugs the kid and, and the kid starts to do a fake ass, apology no 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 there's no need i mean mercy doesn't need an apology Mm -hmm. and mercy doesn't wait for you to show up mercy Mm -hmm. runs to you down the road Mm -hmm. and you know and and as the story says he was still a long way off Mm -hmm. yeah forgiveness waits for you to show up with an apology and you have to arrive fully at the house. No, mercy runs to you. Hmm. That's the kind of God we have. You know, it's not the God who says, I'm waiting. You know, what do you need to say to me? You mm-hmm. know, we're like that. So I, I just feel like it's too, uh, it's not large enough forgiveness. That's, I think that's why I never write about it, because... There's too much waiting, you know, waiting for an apology, waiting for, you know, I go, no, let's, the idea is to not, you know, is to be in the world who God is compassionate, loving, and kind. Yeah. And let me add merciful. What would you say to the person? So in the book, you talk about this um, one false move, God. I know you said yeah. you were surprised. Do you? I don't. Know, I'm not trying to like ask if you remember what you wrote, but you. Probably oh yeah, that was that was in tattoos. Oh okay. You know, it's it's sort of the so you have to choose between the one false move God mm-hmm. or the the no matter whatness of God. Yeah. 
And and so mercy is the no matter whatness. Mm-hmm. And the one false move is sort of our own human projection onto God that mm-hmm. says, "Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are you what are you doing there?" You know, and it's like the God who lays in wait for you to make a mistake. Mm-hmm. So here's a sentence that probably you'll never said about me. When the Pope read your work, this is the good thing he had to say about what you wrote. He said, um, this also tells us something about ourselves. Sometimes we are also restless and our restlessness, uh, manists, I don't know what that word means. Maybe it's a Pope word. Uh, our what, need, spell, spell it for me. It's main, E-S-T-S, manists. I don't know what that is. I don't know. I mean, I'm not the Pope, so maybe he, yeah. he made up a word. I don't know. Um, yeah. But our restlessness, mainness, our need to break out of rigid frames of mind. And in some ways, that rigid frame of mind is this one false move, God, this idea that, you know, I'll, maybe I'll get forgiveness if I get all the way to the front porch of the, the father's home and I say, I'm sorry, good enough. And, but mercy breaks us out of that rigid frame of mind. Like, how, how can we be people who, if we're stuck in that rigid frame of mind, can find ourselves broken free? Yeah, I mean, you know, the homies here talk about find the thorn underneath. Well, a lot of times we don't, we don't want the thorn underneath. We want to, we want to move quickly to judgment. We mm-hmm. want to, we want to strike the high moral distance, us and them. We mm-hmm. don't know that separation is an illusion, so we think that we're separate. And um, hold on, can you say that again? Separation is an illusion. Separation is an illusion. Yeah. The thing that we don't belong to each other, that there, there are people who are in and people who are out. Hmm. You know, I, I have mass today, so I looked at the readings at three o'clock this morning, and I and the gospel is the, the guy with the withered hand, and everybody's watching. Is he going to heal him on the Sabbath? And and so you have the Pharisees, and their very name means the separate one. Mm-hmm. Like we're separated from the rest of you. And and the the scandal was not that he healed this guy with the withered hand. The real scandal and the reason why they chose to plot against him right after that was because, you know, he Jesus had imagined a circle of compassion and then he imagined nobody standing outside that circle. So mm-hmm. he dismantled the barriers that exclude. And so the guy with the withered hand who was on the outs separate he brought him in and that's why they wanted to kill jesus not because he had done this good deed you know even if it was on the sabbath i mean it was undoubtedly a good thing the guy you know was better off because of this miracle Mm -hmm. but uh but the real deal the real threat was to their separateness. And, and, you know, Mother Teresa says the problem in the world is we've, we've forgotten that we belong to each other. So Jesus stands against forgetting that we belong. So he says, no, widen the circle, make it wider, include everybody. Mm-hmm. Inclusion is God. And this was offensive to people who felt that, especially with the purity code, that separation is God. No, inclusion is. Hmm. So, so I think it's a kind of a more exciting um, sense of the marrow of the gospel that 
that it's about bringing people in and and uh, and so it connects to the things that Jesus took seriously, which are inclusion, nonviolence, unconditional loving kindness, and passionate acceptance. So, so how do we connect to those things? How do we be a church that takes seriously what Jesus took seriously? Yeah. No, I think that's an important question that we all have to wrestle with. Uh, one of the things that I, I've appreciated about your work from afar is your work with Homeboy uh, Ministries, which uh, I think you have, what, like eight businesses or so that you've created? Ten. Ten. Okay. It's, it's growing. Um, different jobs that you found. Um, uh, many people with, uh, you know, criminal criminal uh, behavior on their record are difficult to get jobs. And so you, you start these industries, these businesses, so that these people can, uh, your friends, these people can get work. And early on, your notion was that nothing stops a bullet like a job, correct? But then along the way, your focus evolved from not just a job, but healing. That's right. How, do, how does that message of inclusion, of acceptance, of, of God being a merciful God, is that part of the healing process? Um, well, I mean, historically, you know, we started a school mm-hmm. and then made up of gang members from the eight gangs from my parish. But then they started to say, if only we had jobs. And so yeah. we went out to try to find felony friendly employers. But so there's a difference between if you're listening to people at the margins, they will tell you one thing. And gang members said jobs. So it was that was it. We had the T-shirts ready. Nothing stops a bullet like a job. Yeah. And we were off and running. That's when you listen to gang members. But once once you know them, you go, no, it's about healing. So so there was an idea about you know, that an educated gang member may or may not go back to prison or an employed one may or may not. But then we, our kind of contention and our absolute guarantee was that a healed gang member will not ever reoffend. period, the end. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of 15 years in. And so now we're into our, you know, 34th year. And, and that's proven a pretty sturdy, notion mm-hmm. that um and so we dedicate ourselves to healing so a lot of times the outsider view thinks well if only gang members knew more or if they're if they had better character or if their values were improved or you know if they were smarter or trained or i don't know yeah all that stuff comes when there's healing mm-hmm. when when you've tended to injury and wound and and so they find themselves in a, in a community that cherishes them. And that leads them to a place where they, they really do find the joy there is in cherishing themselves and others. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a culture. It's more a cultural thing. So people will talk about, yes, we offer wraparound service. The culture. Mm. You've uh, you grew up in LA, a different part of LA than where you are. Uh, it, your parish is different type of community than the one you grew up in. More gangs than where you grew up. Um, 
you spent time in Bolivia. Is that correct? Yeah. When you talk about people finally in healing, you, you've been in different cultures, different places, different parts of even LA. Um, is there a different journey to healing for different people or is it all a similar journey to healing? It just looks a little different uh, for some. Well, you know, I, I, I always uh, think about the three profiles of kids who join gangs are the despondent kid, the traumatized kid, and the mentally ill kid, mm-hmm. or a combo burger of one or two or three of those. And on a continuum of severity, some are more mentally ill than de- despondent, and some are more traumatized than mentally ill. But what's the antidote to all that? Loving, caring people who show up and pay attention. So somebody was talking the other day, you know, about kindness, kindness, kindness. And uh, then somebody said, well, what happens if kindness doesn't work? And the person said, increase the dose. And I think that's exactly right. So it's not a specialized, rarefied thing, which is why no human being need disqualify themselves from the from loving people into wholeness and to be a part of the healing. Yeah. So, but if you're the proud owner of a pulse, you can actually do this. So, and but that's the problem, you know. It's sort of like, well, you know, gang members can only talk to gang members. Nonsense. Yeah. You know, and so there's a language of care and cherishing and nurturing and holding people. And so if you can do that, then that's um, that's the language we all want to be speaking, you know, that, <clears throat> that, that really of tenderness, you know. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, when he summed up the law and the prophets, he said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you for this is the law and the prophets. It seems like what Jesus is saying is let's put empathy into action. Imagine yourself in someone else's position and then do for them what you'd want them to do for you. And it seems like that translates to different subgroups of people, whether it's a suburban person in Texas who grew up in evangelical church or it's someone part of a gang or you're a refugee or, you know, whatever it is, it seems like that sort of love is what we all need. And it seems that like that changes everyone's life. Isn't that the gospel, right? Yeah, you know, although I have a homie who always says uh, he thinks Jesus wants us to do him one better. So, Mm -hmm. like, Jesus will say, love your enemies, and the homie will say, yeah, how about don't have any enemies? Mm -hmm. And I go, yeah, Jesus is perfectly fine if you do him one better. And so, another example he used was, you know, um, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and he said, but people don't really love themselves very well. So chances are you're not your new well. He said, love way better, actually. Yeah. You know, because it, it's fuller, it's richer, it's more spacious, it, and it's, it's clear. You know, it's sort of like the way you love your child is is exactly how God loves us and how you're how you're supposed to love each other. But once you get down to love your neighbor as yourself, it's who is my neighbor? And I don't love myself very well. So this is not going to be such a winning combination. Yeah. But yeah. but I, I think that's really a, a healthy 
thing, you know, to to even want to aspire to. Yeah. No, I'm 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 a big fan of Jesus teaching on the golden rule. Makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, yeah. One one of the things I've heard you say years uh, ago is r- reaching gang members. You, you don't reach gangs now. You reach gang members, but actually, your secret to reaching them is that you don't reach them. You let them reach you. It's an idea that like they have something to offer you as much as you have something to offer anyone else. And right. Am I getting that, that line, that quote, that mentality somewhat accurate? Yeah. Yeah. It, it comes from a, a, a gang member in Houston after a talk I gave asked me who, and he was working with gang members on the streets of Houston. And he says, how do you reach them? Meaning gang members. And I, I found myself saying, uh, for starters, stop trying to reach them. You know, can you be reached by them? Yeah. Can you receive them? Can you allow your heart to be altered? So we have this notion that we're we're supposed to go to the margins to rescue and fix and save and and even make a difference. Nobody's ever heard a graduation ceremony where somebody didn't say, "Go out there and make a difference." Mm-hmm. But. But what this suggests, I think, is that you don't go to the margins to make a difference. You go to the margins so that the folks there will make you different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Jesus seemed to have this idea that um, uh, you know the poor, the outsider, had a significant part of the kingdom of God, not simply as a charity case, but as central members to it. Um, so this idea of like you, you don't reach them, but let them reach you. Let understand the blessing that the poor have, the meek have, because as Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. Like there's something there uh, for us to remember. But I, I was thinking about that as like this book in which you're talking, or the Pope, your friend, the Pope and you are talking about the value of listening to your word geezers. And it seems like sometimes there are people who feel like as they age, like they don't have as much to offer. They feel kind of left out. They feel like, you know, the church is passing by and now they're sitting on the back row. And it's, it seems like the, the challenge for us as churches is to find ways to reach each other and to listen to each other and to value what everyone has to say to be a part of the community because you know as scripture tells us like the image of god is in all people yeah i mean uh, you know but sometimes we we need to turn stuff on its head you know which is what jesus did for a living and and like our mutual friend ron rollheiser who's a great man who um he, he was, uh, you know, talking about the widow, orphan, and the stranger in the original covenantal relationship with God that says, as I have loved you, so must you have, uh, you know, a, a special love and preferential care for the widow, orphan, and the stranger. And he said that in the, you know, nowadays we can kind of go widow, orphan, stranger, maybe not so much stranger, but with widow and orphan, we kind of feel like, uh, wow, you know, that there's a kind of a soft spot in our hearts for them. But, but he said at the time of the writing of that, the widow, orphan, and stranger were people who society looked at and said, we can live without you. And so kind of living the gospel is, is to say to the widow, orphan, and stranger, we refuse to live without you. And, and for me, that's exciting. That's kind of where the church needs to be. So, and God sort of identifies the widow, orphan, and stranger as these are, are 
subgroupings of the poor, if you will, who God knows they know what it's like to have been cut off. And because they've suffered in exactly this way, God thinks these are precisely the people who happen to be our trustworthy guides to lead us to the to the kinship of God. So mm-hmm. that's, that turns it on its head, you yeah. know, where, where we think it's about go to the poor and help the poor, fix the poor, save the poor, make a difference at the margins. No, this is, um, there's a, a, a Jesuit theologian, John Sobrino, who wrote a book called No Salvation Outside of the Poor. And it's a provocative title, but it's, it's a way of saying, no, there, you know, that's how we are led. These are our trustworthy guides to get us to the kinship of God, which, of course, is the goal. Mm-hmm. Can, can you flesh that out for us when you talk about how um, the people you mentioned uh, are typically on the outside? Kingdom of God says, no, these are the guides. These, these show us something about God. You've been doing this for, for decades. Um, been with a lot of people who probably are considered like the outside of a lot of societies. Um, I assume you have plenty of lessons you've learned from them and ways in which they've guided you. I mean, you mind sharing any that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's only about lessons learned. You know, it's truly about, um, you know, seeing things in a totally different way. I think that's kind of the point. This is why um, they're so special. Um to God and to Jesus is because, um, you know, part, part of the, the thing is, um, you know, when Lazarus and Dives and, and, and he's saying, please quench me cause I'm in hell. And, and, uh, or even the rich young man, none of it is about bank accounts. Hmm. It's, it's about arrogance, you know? So, so the opposite of the hubris of of Dives and the hubris, perhaps even of the rich young man, is the is the humility of of receiving from the poor and those on the margins what you need to know. So, I mean, the trick on that one too it even has to do with burnout. You know. I've had people say, oh, my gosh, I, you know, I used to work with refugees or whatever. I just stopped doing it. I, it just, uh, I guess I'm just too compassionate, you know, like you burned out and mm-hmm. I was doing too much and I was giving too much of myself and, and it was too hard to make a difference. And, I, and I've heard that many times, you know, and I think to myself, no, you've just allowed it to become about you. It's not about you. Oh, it, it's about us. So if if I go to the margins to make a difference, it's about me. But if I go to the margins so that the folks there make me different, then it's about us. And it feels passive, but it isn't. It's really about, it's really about people inhabiting in an exquisitely mutual way, their own dignity and nobility. You do it together. It's not me bestowing power on you. I, I've never once said, I, you know, I transform lives here. I've never said anything like that. I don't even say I serve people. I don't even say I help people or save people. I say transformation happens here. 
but it happens to me as much as it happens to anybody. Hmm. But it's it's about it's about what happens here. So even when volunteers come and they say, "Well, um, I want to volunteer, but what am I going to do?" And I always say, "No, what's going to happen to you?" And and that feels more real. Yeah, that that seems more like what Jesus would probably say too. Yeah, when we try to help, um, there's an situations that are heartbreaking that you find exhausting because you don't know how to fix them and you want to fix them. You want to help. And so I think that feeling of like, I'm just worn out by trying to do this is like something many have experienced. How do we not center ourselves in that situation? Because out of what we believe to be a good desire, like you're trying to help someone in a terrible situation and it is heartbreaking because there aren't easy solutions to fix a problem. Like, how, how do we not center ourselves so that we don't go down that like burnout road as you described? It can't be about you. And that's the, that's sort of the key. If it's about you, you will be depleted in this effort. But if it's about us and if it's about the other person, then you're eternally, it's eternally replenishing. You are forever. Um, being replenished because you're, what are you doing at the margins? You're, you're, you know, you're receiving people, you're allowing your hearts to be altered. Um, But you're, you're kind of, uh, you're delighting in who the people are, Hmm. you know, you're, and that's the key. And, And so, you know, the reading this last Sunday was from Isaiah 62 and it, it kind of begins with God kind of saying uh, through the prophet, I will not be silent. I will not be quiet. And we're going, uh-oh, are we in trouble or what? And then God says, you are my delight. You know, hmm. in fact, that's my new name for you, my delight. And, and so I always feel like, you know, God extends the tender glance to us. We're meant to extend the tender glance to others. God in the covenant doesn't say, as I have loved you, love me back. No. Love others. As I have loved you, so must you have this love for the widow, orphan, and the stranger. In the same way, um, if God is saying, you're my delight, then we are in turn meant to, you know, delight, delight in others. And, that's why, I mean, I, I learned this the hard way where I almost did um, burn out, probably after my first 10 years doing this. And then I, I, I realized that, no, this is, um, I've allowed it to become about me. And then in an instant, I just stopped. And it's did- been eternal eternally replenishing since then. I'll, I, not to say you don't get exhausted, you do. How did you get stopped though? You don't want to help. You want to help. You want to help people, but I I never let it become about me. And it's sort of the key. How how did you just stop though? Well, I I wrote about this in one of my books about a a kid. It's a longer, longish story, but the kid, um, uh, Lulu, his name was Lulu. And I uh, went to go pick him up at, uh, at a rehab center to bring him home to attend his, younger brother's funeral who had killed himself, which never happens among gang members. 
So I went to pick him up and, uh, and he said last night I had a dream. So in the dream, he said he and I were in a room, a largish room, but it was pitch black, no illuminated exit sign, no, no windows, no light creeping under the door, black. And we were silent. And he said, and in the silence, but I knew you were there, though, he said. And in the silence, I reached into my pocket and I had a flashlight and I aimed it steadily on the light switch. And he tells me as he's telling the dream, he goes, I know I'm the only person who can turn that light switch on. I'm really glad you happen to have a flashlight. And. And so he walks following the beam of light and he turns the light switch on. And now he's sobbing as he's telling me this. And he says, the light is better than the darkness. Like he didn't know that to be the case. Well, that dream changed my life because I realized that what I had been doing and nearly, um, you know, burning out as a result was I was attempting to turn the light switch on for people. You can't do it. Then it's about you, but it's also you can't do it. That's why you, you get frustrated. All we can do is recognize that we own flashlights and we know where to aim them. Hmm. And no amount of me wanting him to turn that light switch on is the same as him finally doing it. It changed my life forever. I've never had another experience like that where, where I had this instant kind of insight that has stayed with me. And that was, you know, probably 25 years ago. Hmm. And, and I've never been close to burnout since because of that dream. But I was totally nearly burning out prior. Wow. So I... I don't know. It's, he taught me wisdom. Hmm. And so when your job is to point people to the light, you can't make them turn the light switch on or off. You can't make them choose, but you've got a job to delight in them, point them to where hope is. And even when things don't go the way you want, you understand it's, it's not about you. And I've, I've heard you talk about the, the number of funerals that you've performed um, for these men and women who are involved in the gang life. I assume you probably know the number of the last one you did off the top of your head, right? 254 last Friday. Um, a 14-year-old named Jeremy. I, I, I can only imagine the way that you can survive after decade after decade of, of serving and befriending gang members in spite of like how ominous like that story typically is. 254 funerals later is to understand like it's not about you you're not the center of it you're not the savior of it is is that a fair read am, am i getting it right yeah 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 i mean i, I was interviewed by pbs and the, and the very last question was well tell me how's it feel to have saved all thousands and thousands he said thousands and thousands of lives and i go well, i don't know what you're talking about and i'm not being coy i really don't know what you're talking about so mm -hmm. I don't know what you're talking about. So it's like, um, I don't save lives. Because, and yeah, I mean, if, if you save thousands of lives, then when there's a, 
a funeral number, then those are the lives that you didn't save. It seems like it's a two. Yeah, and sword. I also don't. I don't believe in failure or success. Yeah. You know, but I also don't believe in good or evil because <laughs> I don't. I don't believe in evil. I just, you know, I, I for forty years I worked with gang members. I don't know. I've never met an evil person. Maybe you'd think I would have. I've met damaged and injured and wounded and broken and mentally ill, despondent, traumatized. I've met all those people, but I've never once met an evil person. Hmm. And so I just think it's not very helpful. It's, it's not how God sees. God doesn't see that way. Mm-hmm. I had somebody, I did a retreat last weekend, a guy my age who, who at the end, we had kind of a little Q&A period. So it had been a four-hour Zoom retreat. And he said, so you don't believe that God is some days pleased with me and some days displeased with me? I said, no. I mean, I smile and I frown. But God isn't smiling at me. God is adoring me. Hmm. And... God isn't frowning in my general direction because he's too busy adoring me. It's, it's how God is. We don't get it because it's not how we are. And, and we are always insisting on creating God in our own image. Richard Rohr says, uh, our image of God creates us. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, if, if your God is a puny God, brace yourself to be puny. Yeah. And and so I think that's a very wise thing. You know, uh, my friend Andy Lamott always says, you know, you've created God in your own image when God hates the same people you do. Great so, quote. yeah. So it's like you don't want to do it. You, 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 you want to have the broadest um, imaginable sense of who our God is. It's absolutely consequential our notion of God, because it's going to drive the, it's the engine that'll get you there. And if it's too tiny, brace yourself. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Well, uh, Father Boyle, thank you for the time. Uh, there's plenty more things I'd like to ask you about. Maybe another day down the road, you write another book and we can have you back on the podcast. But uh, in the mean, meantime, Father Boyle, thank you. Uh, your book with the Pope on uh, <clears throat> geezers is uh, is a good one people can check that out <laughs> sounds like you need to check it out too but uh anyway. <laughs> yeah better i you know actually i think they sell it in our bookstore here our, our okay merchandise well, store. You're, you're on page so. 172 so go at least look at page 172 um, i'm gonna go there now and, and check it out anyway thank you sir it's been an absolute honor appreciate hey, it sorry for all the starts and stuff but i'm glad we finally connected hey no worries at all thank you <laughs>